0: I'm Nato Green. Welcome to what I'm calling Season 2 of the Nato Sessions podcast produced by 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center where I talk to smart people about things that I really care about. Uh, I'm a comedian. You can see me do stand-up every Monday with my group, The Business, at uh, Cinecave, Lost Weekend Video on Valencia, until September uh, 19th when we will move as of the 19th to Fridays at the Hemlock Tavern on Polk Street, uh, please see the business uh, wherever we may be. Um, today's episode is a back to school episode. Uh, this week, as I record it, uh, uh, my kids are starting uh, back to elementary school. And so I've got schools on the brain. Um, it seems to, uh, uh, and I'm harkening back to a, a roundtable discussion I recorded about what's wrong with, with uh, the state of public education. and. What kind of agendas do people have, and why is why do people like to talk about uh, the problems with schools, and somehow the problems don't get fixed? And uh, politicians love to come up with all kinds of complicated ideas and pundits about what's wrong with schools, and uh, somehow nobody ever asks teachers or people who have a personal connection to public schools. Um, so I thought I would do that. So my roundtable consists of Ken Trey, a teacher. With the and uh, uh, official activist with the United Educators of San Francisco, the San Francisco Teachers Union, who have just taken a strike vote um, to authorize a strike. Uh, uh, And also Kevin Bogus of Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth, who does youth organizing and is a San Francisco native and graduate of our public school system. And Misha Mosley, comedian and educator. Uh, we have great talk, so let's get right into it. So the reason we are all here talking about public education is that, um, like it's it's always been my family business. Like my both my parents were my dad was my mom was a teacher my dad was a teacher an administrator and a you know uh, education professor my brother's a teacher my sister-in-law's a teacher so on and so forth and now my kids are. Uh, 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 What's the word? Students. Uh, students
1: matriculating <laughs> uh,
0: through the San Francisco Unified School teachers, System.
1: Teachers. Uh, uh,
0: my kids go to here to Leonard Flynn, right here in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, Roll down the hill. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a short walk. They're in the Spanish immersion program. We're real happy with it, and it's you know, and we are constantly, uh, it's it is you know, I grew up in this neighborhood, and 15 years ago, like Leonard F- Flynn was like a pretty rough and abandoned school and is what I think of sort of in the sweet spot of gentrification where there's like enough middle class people that there's starting to be some resources but not, you know, it's not like one of the popular schools. And so, sort of what brought me to this conversation with you all is that, uh, uh, like when I was on the school tours, and they were, and the, like people were, everybody's trying to figure out how to get into the four good schools or whatever. It the, wasn't a
1: comedy tour, you weren't. Yeah, no, lighting <laughs> up the principal's <laughs> heavy load. I would make jokes, and, and then people, bad people, teachers people
0: would glare at me um, when I made jokes <laughs> yeah. on the school tours. Uh, and, you know, well, and, and actually, this is what I said is, people, is they'd be like, how do you know, how do we get into rooftop or how do we get into Cleo and or Miloma or whatever? And I'd be like, how can why don't we just have good schools for children? And then people would go, you're a communist. There is a it is sort of this truth in public life and that people are, that schools are failing and that politicians just, it's something that politicians get to say and that pundits get to say and without explaining what they mean or necessarily <laughs> marshaling any evidence for it, and that makes me suspicious of it. So uh, I guess my first question is, is are schools in crisis? And if you think so, what does that mean to you? And, and if not, then why, do, why is it something that people keep saying? Go.
1: American society's in crisis.
0: Ken Trey so of United Educators.
1: Yes, from the union. Big labor. Uh, We have have the um, biggest division between the haves and the have-nots since uh, the Great Depression. And right here in San Francisco, we are the urban center with the uh, fastest-growing economic divide. So American society is failing. And for as long as these statistics have been recorded any place on Earth, you just throw a dart and you look at the income of that neighborhood where a school is, And you can more or less predict the statistics on how kids are doing. So it's American society that's failing. We need to bring more resources to schools. We need to put more effort into preparing and training and supporting teachers. We need wraparound services. Uh, We need kids coming to class with food in their belly, with a stable home environment, with a positive economic outlook, with access to higher education. and there's no doubt schools can do better as every institution in the USA. But to pick on American public schools, I, I would say in the contrary. You could go to schools in low-income neighborhoods around the country you'll see astounding efforts by people giving their life's energy to supporting the students. Misha?
2: I think I agree. I think it's a, it's a factor that's really about society at large. I think schools as an institution are doing what they were designed to do, which, which is to separate people. Um, I think we made a lot of efforts in the mid 20th century to change the tide. I'm sitting here because of the success of those efforts. But in general, um, I feel like the system keeps adjusting and keeps following the trend of society as a whole. And what we need to do is what I, I feel like him was saying. It takes a group of individuals, several groups of individuals, to, to shift that tide with the intentionality of really educating folks. I mean, schools were designed for people to have home lives that, I, I don't know who has those home lives, but the, the very structure, what you're expected to do for homework, um, how your parents are supposed to be involved, I don't know that it's really set up for the people who live in this country today to really succeed. Um, and it, I feel like it's often the exception to the rule that finds success. So I feel like we are failing our children as adults. Um, we have a responsibility to them that we, we, we've got to do more.
3: Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like like SFUSD is failing like just straight up failing. If I had to give them a grade on a report card I would give them an F minus like they're doing a horrible job Um, and it's significantly worse if you're an African American or Latino student. Um, It's significantly more difficult for you even to get the opportunity to learn because of the way that practices in the school district work. Um, I would say the school district is failing teachers uh, in the fact that they put teachers in situations um, that are beyond their control by having too many students in a classroom, um, just making their jobs pretty much unbearable, trying to teach, you know, 30 kids in an hour. Um, I just feel like, there's commitments that we as a society make to young people by forcing them to go to schools and threatening to lock up their parents if they don't go. Um, and then we can't even fulfill the other side of the coin, which is actually provide them with a quality education to be successful and to live in San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive cities to live in the United States. Um, if you're not preparing people to get jobs that are going to pay them you know, $100,000 a year, you don't want them to live in San Francisco. Um, and I think the reality is I went to school here. I went to Thurgood Marshall Academic High School up the street. And um, it, was a, it was a school that did not prepare me for what was going to come next. And I had people at that school who looked out for me, who helped me, and who supported me. But what we know that students need is a whole community, not just a few people at a school doing that. Um, and until we kind of reorientate our priorities um, and really stop blaming people and start saying we just have to solve these problems um, and stop looking for time and patience and waiting and, and, and acting like it's, 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 it's all of our children in these classrooms being failed um, and not being served. Um, I feel like if we had that kind of urgency, it wouldn't be a failure. But the fact that that's not there means that people are OK with
1: the status quo and letting that continue. Yeah, I mean, one of the things which we can't ignore, and Kevin brought it up so we have the brown school board ruling but in fact and and so there was some integration of schools in san francisco and elsewhere um for a while but san francisco is i, I
0: am in part a product of a consent decree school
1: and there you are i
0: went a to success martin luther podcast. king uh uh middle school wow which Ooh. is a
1: troubled campus now
0: Right. It was this. So, this was like in the first wave yeah. of the consent decree.
1: So our schools are are becoming as segregated as ever, and it's it's along racial, ethnic lines and along economic lines, and there's just so many. Well, there's studies which show everything, but at least I would assert that that the that the um, preponderance of the studies of the good studies show that in fact. Um, desegregating public education was working. And if you wanna use test scores as, as your gauge um, and with our move to resegregate schools, we're seeing this grow. It's a symptom of the growing economic and racial divide in San Francisco and other cities. And so that, that's a big problem. And there are not too many of our political leaders really seriously trying to address that issue.
2: And I think one of the challenges of desegregation in schools is that it's in some ways trying to fix the lack of segregation in housing. So I'm a product of desegregated schools. I had to get on a bus to go to school. I couldn't walk to my neighborhood school if I wanted a decent education. And I feel like a part of my research is on black teachers and part of what was lost in desegregation were a lot of black people going into education as a viable profession. If you jump through the hoops now to get a college degree and you're a black person in America, people kind of look at you crazy if you decide to go into education because you can do so much more. You can make so much money. And the idea that we're okay sending our kids to school to mix together, but we don't want to live on the same block as one another. And when I say don't want to, I don't mean necessarily in terms of a, a social Um, or, or, you know, community sense, but in an economic sense. What are we doing to actually allow ourselves to have mixed neighborhoods, not just in terms of race and ethnicity, but also in terms of class? Because I see, where I see the mixing most is in middle class neighborhoods, and then you have the middle class black population separated from the working class, and that's just a cycle that's just not going to work.
0: Do you, I I feel like there's, uh, there's a there's a way in which sort of the discourse around public education is I mean is so, so freighted with the like racial coding and you know and the and that the that when people talk about the failure of public education or whatever and the limitations and the problems it, it, it there's a way that it, it feels like it's it's all a, a sort of a weird way of talking about black people in the same in the same way that people are talking about welfare and urban poverty like it's all coded uh, is that is the am I am I wrong is that new
1: where does it come from Obviously, this country has been damned from the slave system, so from the start, and public schools and our education system from the 19th century on has reflected that. So I don't know about people not being willing to talk about it, but society is not willing to address the issue and really do what's necessary, which would be pouring in resources, which would be really serious discussions about what equity means. Um, and stop doing things like blaming teachers for the problems. Stop doing things like saying that the, the, the public schools can't do the job and we have to turn toward privatized or a charterized system. And um, and, and I would say as part of back to the teachers, stop trying to deprofessionalize um, the folks in the classroom, and taking away um, our protections. I'll, I'll give one example why it's important to have due process, which some people call tenure. Um, when I started at Balboa High School in the mid-80s, the, the first thing I, I recognized as a new teacher is that when the school bell rang, there were about 100 or so fellas hanging out at the main entrance, and they were mostly Latino kids and black kids, and nothing was done. Well, it was a group of senior union teachers who went to the downtown administration and demanded that something be done to get the students into class. Without a union contract and without their due process protections, that principal could have retaliated and fired each and every one of those educators. But because of that, they were able to stand up for the school and for their students. And, and so, anyway...
3: Um, I mean I think I think for me it's like it's especially like thinking about segregation and kind of where we're at now uh, we went from having a time where we were really intentional about how important education was that we do not want certain people to have full access to it to now saying that we don't necessarily think it's that important right and I think that is because people have a hard time seeing people they're not used to seeing in classrooms and being successful I mean I think like that, that the, the fact that people can't understand that we all deserve to have good things. Like, when you're talking about schools, like, why can't all the schools be good? Like, that's a stupid question. You're a communist. I mean, it's actually the opposite. I mean, it's like, Under what circumstance would you tell a parent, actually, we think your kid is going to be hella dumb, so we don't want them to go to a good school, right? You wouldn't say that to somebody's face, but you will say, well, we have budgetary constraints. We have all these other things, and it's like, what could possibly be more important than educating a child to be successful? With all the data, all the information we have about what that means, what decision could be more important than that? And that's a conversation that people don't want to have in a place where people don't want to go. Right. So instead they say that you're a communist or you're unrealistic or those people aren't motivated or they don't want it. And that's why they don't have it. I mean, it it all goes into this narrative about people not really being willing to accept that other people can be their equals and that they don't actually have to be better than a certain group of people.
0: Change is slow. That's another one of the one of the greatest hits of excuses.
2: I think it's also what are we educating young people for? You know, um, I started my teaching career at Thurgood Marshall. Um, and
0: Full disclosure, my brother went to Thurgood Marshall, and my dad was assistant principal there at one point.
2: You're talking about the elementary?
0: No, the one, the one oh, you so went to. High school. You were my teacher. I
2: know, I realize that as I'm staring at you. I'm like, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin? I'm sorry, I'm like trying to like hold it, and I was like, that's where I know you from. <laughs> anyway, um, but what are we educating folks for, right? So...
0: Oh, I, you were, you might have been my brother's teacher. Uh, Cause I would do ben? Sh- I, I, ben Green. Ben Green. I did a show. I did a show with you, with you. And he saw it on Facebook and he was like, she's
2: one of the best teachers I ever had. Are you serious? Yeah. This, okay. I'm going to have Right my here, moment. live
3: on podcast. I, I'm I
2: really yes. having, this is awesome.
3: I knew it before, but I waited so we could actually have that moment. Oh, okay. Thank podcast. you. Because when I walked
2: Way in, I'm like, like, I'm like <laughs> where do I know Kevin from? This when is I'm your life. Someplace? And I'm like, right, that's where I know i from. But you know, so, and I would have conversations with Ben about this a lot actually, because he didn't like to do my homework. He said, why? Why do I have to do this? Why is this important? And when we think about what we're educating young people for at the time that they were in school, the internet just started. You think about how many careers, how many lives have been changed simply by that. So the education isn't really the the same old, I taught modern world history, I'm supposed to stop at World War II. We're not prepared, if I did what I was supposed to do, they're not prepared for the 21st century. So I think when we talk about education, we also have to keep in mind, different people have different goals. And I think when I was talking about segregation and and desegregation, part of what was happening was, for black people, it was about the upliftment of the race. You don't hear that language as much anymore. It was about getting in positions to be able to help other black people, understanding that while we need and it and still need people who aren't black, we also have to figure out how do you get in positions of power? And I think some of that got distorted with money. Some of that got distorted with fame. And people have forgotten that it takes everyone to fix this. So people get into positions and don't have the same kind of um, commitment if you will. And if anything, if you say it out loud, then it's like, well, what about everybody else? You must be racist if you're just focusing on black people. Yet we know that whole canary in the mind. We know that we can see where we are as a society by where we see, you know, our, our black folks are. This is the legacy of slavery.
0: There's, I mean, it's part part of what's interesting to me is to, th- to think about as the moment continues um, is uh, I mean, and actually, so, you know, my, so my brother is now teaching high school at, at June Jordan, uh, and and is uh, and one of the conversations we've had is like, on the one hand, we all as a family, you know, we all believe in public schools as an institution. On the other hand, if any of us were to, if someone said, "I want you to design an institution to crush children's spirits." probably you would come up with something that looks a lot like school <laughs> you know that you and so it's like it's like there's always been this tension between the role of schools as an equalizer as a tool of educating citizens and as a way of reproducing the class system and arguably the school system is working perfectly now <laughs> because you know in the in the context of San Francisco now ranking between Rwanda and Guatemala in its level of inequality that that its that its school system is doing what it's supposed to be supposed to do, uh, uh, which unfortunately is not educating people, right? So, uh, you know, I, I remember in. Uh, when I was in college, I, I, I tell you some of this history, and there are these, you know, these stories about like uh, the, you know, the the march of tailorism into public education, and superintendents who want, wanting to be able to sit in their office on, on every day of the year, know what was happening in every classroom because it was all standardized and automated, and you know that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's like it's it's hard to sort of think about what the like how to manage that contradiction, you know, and, and how to on the one hand. Not you know expect that children should should get educated and we should fight for good schools for everybody, and also that it that 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 uh, people have have other that there are other
3: agendas at work as with any public institution i, I mean I think. <laughs> I think I think I think you're right. Like schools would be the perfect place to send students like young people to like break their wills. And I think we see that happen a lot. And I think the heart of it is the fact that schools are places where students and a lot of times parents don't have any voice at all. And the people who are making the decisions are the people who are least affected by them. And that just always leads to chaos. It's like being in. Um, a, a really bad relationship, right? Where the other person keeps telling you what you need to do and what you should do, and it's just unhealthy because they don't actually know what you're going through and what you're experiencing. So I think for for me, someone who works with students and parents, a lot of times, the issues that they're having and that they're seeing doesn't get to the level of the people at the top because, you know, they're beyond it. Like one of the campaigns that we worked at at Coleman was about clean bathrooms, you know what I mean? And the principal maybe isn't as concerned about clean bathrooms as a student because they don't have to go all the time or even maybe having access to go to the bathroom. A A couple of years ago, there was a school that said students couldn't go to the bathroom inside the building during lunch and they had to have a security escort to go to the bathrooms at all. And so it's a huge school with two security guards. So if you have to go to the bathroom, you have to wait. You know what I mean? And so that, that's not respect. That's not treating people as equals, not like you value them and you want them to be there. Um, and until schools start to, to do that and start treating people with respect, parents and students, then you're going to have the situation where education isn't functioning properly and a lot of people are left
1: out. I, I want to, um, I guess, take uh, a slightly different slant. And I think there's some truth to the Taylor model for public education, and you can't deny the, the um, racial and economic divides which are um, realized in school communities. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of teachers and even school site administrators and people from the community who've done a lot of great things and are doing great things in schools. And, and while I know we lose too many students and too many students are pushed out the door and feel marginalized and alienated, I've also, in my own career of 25 years in the schools, have known hundreds of students, if not thousands, who felt school was the best place they could be during the day. And with the clubs and great teachers in the classroom, uh, much of the day engages students. There's a long way to go, and we're we're not serving enough kids, but I think to paint a picture that's so bleak to say that schools simply reify the contradictions in capitalism and oppression, I think, is missing out the special <coughs> gift that public schools bring to our all-too-privatized society. And, and and I think that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to ignore <clears throat> the, the problems and the lost lives, but it's also... A dangerous thing not to recognize the great things that are going on even in these imperfect institutions and I would say the solution to build the kind of schools we want particularly in poor neighborhoods is the kind of thing that we're doing in San Francisco in our imperfect stumbling way but Coleman Advocates, UESF and other community and labor groups are meeting together to try to push for the best kind of programs to close the opportunity gap, as we call it. So, you know, it takes community, labor, families, teachers, other school staff working together to make our schools as as good as possible. And, and I think that's the fight. But if we start the fight from the premise that schools simply reify the the bad things in capitalism, um, I think we we've probably lost before we begun. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to say, it, by the way, that that I think. I think that's that's the end of the conversation. I mean, I think yeah. ar- ar- arguably, you know, democracy itself. You know, I mean, in a, in a in a in a bourgeois democracy, right? That we we are limited by capitalism, <laughs> but we still we still fight for these this stuff. And we still vote. Go ahead.
3: No, I was just gonna say. I mean, I think. I think I mean, I think schools are oppressive to students and to parents and even to teachers in the school. Anyone involved in the classroom, I feel like feels a lot of burden at the high school that I went to and that you teach at, We had a thing called teacher turnover every year, three to four different teachers left. And they were typically yeah. the very best teachers at the school or more. Oh, right. And so why is that happening? Because not only are students feeling this kind of burden, burden and oppression of not hearing their voice heard, but also teachers, you know, what I mean, it, it, it trickles down and, and it, it leads to a place where people don't feel heard. They don't feel respected. And in public education is such a magical concept that great things still happen and people achieve and overcome it. Um, but we're really putting so many obstacles in front of people to be successful and to get that message that there's a whole group of people who get passed over and they're typically the people who we denied access to it historically
0: uh, so the, the I mean what part of what's what's interesting to me about about the whole conversation is like on some level we we know what the problems are like I mean there's there's a there's a those problems aren't widely enough discussed but what the disparities are and what the problems are. And there's a lot of evidence about what makes schools good and what makes learning work. And there seems to be a complete political inability and lack of will, you know, at, at least at high levels. I don't know, maybe complete is an overstatement, but there seems to be an enormous amount of opposition or difficulty in, in doing the things that we know it work.
1: Let me give you an example of that right here in San Francisco. So around 1989, there were maybe nine teachers got together with a nonprofit, and we launched a program that was then called Community Studies and Service that became known as Linking San Francisco. And it became a national model for service learning projects. And so we started from six or nine teachers at the first meeting we had, and we grew to between four and 500. And so the idea of service learning is that we get kids out of the classroom um, and designing projects in which they took the curriculum. So say you're in a science class uh, studying, I don't know, weather patterns. So you went out and say work with um, rangers from the national park services. You you studied how weather impacted say the coastline and erosion and the native plant life and all that sort of thing. And so there are all those kind of projects. There were anti-poverty projects, there were housing projects, there were projects with seniors. Um, The point is that that program engaged students and test scores went up, if that's important to folks out there in Podland. Attendance rates went up, suspension rates went down, Um, teachers felt better about coming to work, and guess what? That program was destroyed by No Child Left Behind, because we had a superintendent, Arlene Ackerman, who felt that things like service learning took teachers and students away from preparing for the high-stakes testing. And it's the same kind of education reformers that push No Child Left Behind, destroyed programs like Linking San Francisco, which was a national model, um, that are now pushing the anti-teacher agenda, the charter schools agenda, privatization schemes.
2: And I think that goes back to what are we educating students for, right? Because programs like that, and even when I was teaching at Thurgood Marshall, we were a consent degree school. We had so much money for technology, so much money. All the It was a science program, I can't remember the name of it, but you know, all of this money being poured into creating new young scientists when many of us who were teaching there felt like we really want to be teaching kids how to shift what's happening in this community, and I look. Back, I look now at what Baby Hunter's Point is becoming, and I think, what if all of that money wasn't going into? Have no, no, no nothing against science education. I think it's great, but this overemphasis. I'm emphasis. against it. <laughs> yes.
0: Not a fan.
2: Evolution, not. Sure. Of, I, you know, th- this push in one direction and not looking at how to help people shift their community to be what they want it to be. Um, When people say we don't have the resources, we have the resources. We just have to look at where we're putting them. We're putting them into this machine, this ideal of who we think we're trying to create and not putting up a mirror and saying, well, what do we need in this country? And as a result, what do we need young people to know and be able to do? And it's not about competing in this global market in terms of science and technology. We, I feel like we've had decades of trying to do that and look where we are. But if we were to actually think about what this country needs, something as simple as infrastructure. When I went to high school, you could actually learn things that might help you build a high-speed rail, for example. Um, and, and that's scientific, that'll work, that's engineering. But that's not what we're teaching them to do. And I feel like this getting out of the classroom, getting into the community, people are scared of when in fact, that's when you have the social education. That's when you have kids from different races and ethnicities and classes really talking to each other, not competing for the grade, but being side by side, outside of the walls of school, really figuring out how to be in each other's presence, seeing each other's strengths beyond who can bubble in what answers on a test.
1: What better way for middle school kids who are struggling with reading to improve their reading than to tutor elementary school kids. So a simple service learning project, getting out of the classroom, students from middle school would spend some time at an elementary school. They'd work with the younger kids. And the middle school kids loved it and it would help students get in touch with their own basic humanity and giving nature and the joy of helping others, which sounds all corny and all that. But that's what we need to be doing in schools, and those are the lessons that our you know young kids need to and, learn. And we could
2: build some teachers from there. Exactly. Yeah. There so we could grow our
1: know. own. We could grow yeah. our own. Yeah.
0: What do you What do you think is the is the per political like, the you know there, I mean there were these you know Silicon Valley people who just bankrolled that the lawsuit try, that uh, challenging teacher tenure. There, there are all these people who have no actual connection to public education meddling in public education. What's behind that? Like, is it as simple as this is, there's a lot of money that's spent on this and we can privatize it? Or is there some other agenda at work?
3: I, mean, I, I think it's exactly that. There's a lot of money in education. And I mean, I think the weird part about public education is that it actually is everybody's business about what's happening. But really, the only people who normally give input are people who are trying to make a profit off of it. You know, but other people really don't um, don't care who are outside of the school institution. I, I think for, for 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 me, it really comes down to why are the people who are most affected not allowed to really take part in the decision-making process? You know what I mean? Like the people who we hear the most from about what needs to happen in public education are either really, really rich people or really, really rich people who work for the school district. We don't hear parents. We don't see students in the front. We don't normally even see a lot of teachers unless it's with the teachers' union, right, speaking out about a problem or something that needs to be changed. I think... Once we can change that conversation and really shift the power dynamics to say that we wanna see the people who have to deal with this and go through this every day, make decisions about what it is that they're experiencing, we're not really gonna have a different educational system or one that's really functional
1: or working. Yeah, I think a lot of it's about power and where American society is now in the early 21st century. American public schools, at least in middle-class communities, reached their peak in the post-World War II era. And American capitalism was rooted to the United States, both in its investment and wanting workers educated. That's ended. And so big money in this country is no longer invested in the commonwealth, right? The public space. And the most significant single institution in the public space is public education. So... I would go as far as to say as kind of a slogan that that in fact the ruling class in the United States is not interested in a well-educated working class. And so they're abandoning the public schools. They're attacking the teacher unions. They're, they're fighting for every penny that is keeping their pennies out of the public sector and in their private hands. They're proposing uh, privatized alternative educational models. And I think it has to do... With where American society is going and moving toward a kind of plutocracy, this kind of thing that FDR condemned in his 1936 campaign. So, we've come full circle in the last 75 years.
0: From a parent's point of view, and this is a thing that I'm aware of constantly now with my kids in in, in in a public elementary school, is that like I know, you know how long it t- I mean t- takes to you know win any kind of political struggle that matters right i mean you spend years in the trenches fighting these fights and you know your precious children are going to be in school and so there's really there there is a lot of encouragement to seek out the most individualistic solutions possible in you know and and if you know if i can figure it out for my kids and uh and you know this is this is the if ever there is going to be a time where i i want to cash in my white privilege and do what what my wife calls gringo enojado, you know and throw my whiteness around to get to get a better deal for my kids this is going to be the time to do it because i don't want them to languish while we have these long fights and it's hard you know it's just like it's hard to figure out how to build the momentum and the support among among parents and you know and families to to be to be part of that Were you going to chime in on that i was
2: just going to say i think if you look at how many people work in public schools, particularly in administration, and in consulting, and where their kids go to school, that tells you. I mean, there's so many folks that I know who, are, who work with nonprofits that are trying to help schools. I'm not gonna send my kid there yet. I wanna have a school that I would send my child to. In the meantime, I'm gonna send my child over here while I do this work. And, and that's, that's tough.
3: I mean, you have a responsibility as a parent to, to use your white privilege to get your kids all the education <laughs> they can get. You know what I mean? And I don't think anybody could, could knock you for that or or wouldn't try to do it whether they're white or not. You know what I mean? It's like we want the best for our kids, and, like, that's the reality. Um, and I think that the fact that sometimes school sites will come down on parents for speaking up too much about issues or try to push a parent out of a school if there's too many problems, right? It, it kind of de-incentivizes people being involved. I mean, I think for us it's like... We, want, we know that the way for your kid to get the best education for sure is to make sure that we don't have any bad schools. That's the only real guarantee, because even if they get to the right school, get to the right classes, have the right teachers, they still could miss everything. Because their student. we have a system right now that allows for people to fall through the cracks. Um, and as long as one student is having issues, there's an issue in the whole district, and we have to work together to solve those problems. And I think I think the the, the hardest part for people is to envision what would something different look like. Um, And I think that is challenging because we've only experienced the school system, not exactly the way it is now, but in this formation where we have one person in charge, they make good rules or bad rules that affect us. But the reality is if we were the ones making the rules, we could figure it out because we're gonna listen to each other. We're gonna respect our own voice and we're gonna put the kids we care about first. And that's gonna be all the kids who are going to the schools.
2: I think where it gets a little tough is, you know, exactly what you said. Can we envision it? So when I talk about the couple of generations that were impacted, mine, thinking about mine, we were pulled out. So I feel like, yeah, it was great for me that I got to go to the busing program and go to gifted and talented programs. But what it meant for me to leave my neighborhood and then come back, and and it, it didn't help my neighborhood. It helped me. And so I don't I, I don't know a time when we've actually figured this this equity thing out, where we figured out what it means to successfully educate a generation of students across race and across class. So we're trying to do something we haven't actually done yet.
0: So what would equity mean to you in your in your fantasy world?
2: In my fantasy world, it means that we have figured out how to help young people be whole by the time they turn 18 that they love themselves, they have the ability to learn whatever that they want to learn, and to compete in a capitalist system with the exception of getting rid of capitalism, which that's another podcast for another time. But if we can't... That, that's get of, every podcast. That's every podcast, okay. Yeah. So first get rid of capitalism. <laughs> While we're on the way to doing that, um, to me the marker, that you walk across the stage when you're able to say something about who you are and where you've come from, where you're able to compete in the capitalist system, and where you're able to demonstrate some sense of connection to community, however you define that. Because it's in the age of the internet, there's not much that we're going to teach you technically that once you're literate, you can't figure out. What I feel like the job of teachers is now is, is to help bring humanity back to young people because it's being stripped by these institutions. And it's not that there's not intellectual rigor happening, but I really struggle with this. all these test scores, all of this trying to um, race to the top. When in fact, when we get to the top and we look around, if we're not also looking back and taking care of the folks who got us here, we're missing it. So that to me is, is where the goal should be.
1: So I'm a pretty much a bread and butter guy. So, when I think about equity in public education, it means every student should... should Gluten-free bread and hand-churned butter, because it's San Francisco. We we could eat as much fat as we want now. That's the latest studies show that. So, um, every student should um, have music classes, whether they become a musician or not. They should know something about music and art. Every student should have teachers that are well-trained and enthusiastic and get the support they need to have a career in which they're able to teach based on their love of their subject matter and their students. There should be reasonably small class sizes in every school in the country. There should be great administrators who facilitate the work of the teachers and the school staff rather than dominate and and seek out the bad teacher to to, um, fire. Teaching should be such an attractive career like in countries like Finland. None of this is utopian, by the way. Many countries do this um, that are still capitalist or maybe even social democratic. But education, teaching should be such an attractive field that it's the most competitive to get into. Um, If we start doing those kind of things, then we'll have approximated some sort of equitable education, making sure that every every school, every neighborhood school has those resources to provide our students. And then on top of that, for our low income families, we have to provide the wraparound services that I know Kevin and I talk about a lot, and there's a lot of talk in San Francisco and a little bit of action so that, again, students come to school fed. If the family is in disruption, there are social workers and counselors working with them, that we have stable housing. Uh, that people feel safe in their communities, that educators actually live in the community so they know the kids and see the kids. Um, you know, I go to Safeway and someone yells out, hey, Mr. Trey, and it's some 40-year-old guy that I taught at Balboa 25 years ago. And now he's got two little grandkids. And it freaks me out, but it's a great thing. If we do those things, I think we'll be, we'll we'll have a lot of pride in our public schools and we'll save a lot of lives. I
3: think all of those things were awesome. So, y'all, I think I'm going to hit like all the low-hanging fruit. I think like we should have uh, free public transportation for all young people in San Francisco to get to school. That can get them directly to school on time because we have a lot of kids going across town for school. Uh, Latino students in ESL classes having the same outcome rates um, as their Chinese uh, counterparts. Um, a decrease in the number of suspensions to African-American and Latino students so that it's not dramatically, unrealistically high, uh, and it's significantly closer to zero like all other ethnic groups are. Um, I'd like to see students getting the opportunity to learn about themselves in class, all students having that, and also being able to see themselves reflected in the staff uh, at their schools. Um, I feel like there's a lot of like really big picture things, but they like, there's also a lot of really small things that are happening now that are really unacceptable. Um, and that really have to just make all of us wonder, like, why are we even allowing this to happen? Like, if we all just said we're just not going to let these kids fail anymore, like we just won't have that. We could stop it. You know, what I mean, like if everyone just cared enough to, to just come out one time and say we won't we, we're not going to have this anymore, everything would stop. And we would see an entirely different um, school system.
0: It's I mean, it, it, this is one of those things where, like, I feel like the, the public conversation is, is is overly complicated. You know, it's always like, and when we need to, how we can evaluate the test scores and all this like bureaucratic fixes and the curriculum <clears> and the standards and the core, and then and then it's sort of like, well. Do they have enough money to do any of this stuff? Like you know, it's sort of. I mean, it's the same as like like you know. It, when you think about healthcare, it's like, well, can we just give people healthcare? Like you know, where's the money? Uh, so I feel like like it, I I would be remiss if we didn't spend a, spend a minute talking about about the the court de- court decision uh, that just came down about teacher tenure, and like what what you all think about it, and if if there is uh, it's, it seems I'm unlikely to me that more less job security leads to a better outcome for children <laughs> yeah. uh i'm i'm skeptical of that basic premise um that people perform better when they're you know precarious but uh beyond that sort of what's your what what what, what is your perspective what are your perspectives on on this court case
1: well i could leap into that being the uh, teacher union thug here. Um, the Begarra case will not help a single student in the state of California. And as, as you're suggesting, NATO, um, creating more job insecurity in the public schools is gonna make teaching even less of an inviting uh, career choice for folks. Because one of the few things it offers, if you're doing the job, because there's no such thing as lifetime tenure, um, but if you're doing the job, you have some security. Um, the Vigera case undermining teacher due process is going to disarm passionate, committed educators, the kind of folks who stand up and tell their site administrator or the district administration that they're doing the wrong thing. And because if we, if we remove the due process protections, creative, outspoken educators can be dismissed without cause. And and by the way, in terms of of tenure, first two years, any teacher in California could be dismissed for any reason, no cause given. So the system has the power to get rid of the the so-called bad teachers. But you know what gets rid of most of our good teachers? It's not protecting the veterans who are doing the job with so-called tenure, But most teachers leave, and they leave in the first five years because of the lack of support and respect or a living salary in places like San Francisco. So if we want to improve the teaching core, we have to make it a more inviting profession, which means bringing the resources to allow people to stay and do the stuff they do, which, in my experience, most people who enter the profession love the idea of being a teacher.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and everybody that I know who you know, my all my friends and family who and there are a lot who became teachers basically spent their first two years crying after school every day and like you know being so overwhelmed because they loved the idea of being a teacher yeah. and then were totally unprepared. Sink for, or swim,
1: sink or swim, for, for
0: you know the the kids with parents in jail I, and the hunger and
1: just one thing in San Francisco we do. We are doing some things right, if imperfectly. So we do have a, a system called the Peer Assistance and Review. So if you are a struggling teacher, you're identified as such by a good administrator, and then you are assigned a coach for a year. This is a tough process, but a fair process in which a coach holds that struggling teacher to a, to, to a high level of, of uh, success in the classroom. If after the year that teacher has not met that level of success, they're dismissed. On the other hand, a lot of teachers' careers are saved by working with a coach, and in the instances where there's an unfair administrator who has targeted a teacher for um, undue criticism, um, that teacher is also exonerated by this coach who says, this is an outstanding educator. And that happens, by the way, all too many times.
2: I think um, the ruling is, 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 it's not helping. I mean, I, I think you, you hit on all the main points. I actually feel like we have to go back and look at preparation. I think what's happening is that folks are coming into the field underprepared. I've always liked, in teaching to medicine. My best friend's a pediatrician. I grew up wanting to be a teacher, she grew up wanting to be a doctor. We were prepared very differently and are compensated differently. Um, but I, I feel like there's a, there's a fundamental lack of professionalism that has occurred such that um, when people get into the field, the idea that folks are just staying and teaching because there's nothing better to do or they're just staying for the money or staying just to harm kids. I don't know why people think Folks just wanna stay in education. Part of what's happening is that we know that the resources aren't there once you get in, but there are people who are better prepared than others to face what they're going to face. And if you're looking, particularly at urban education, if you're looking at a district like San Francisco, there's no reason why we can't grow our own. We know what's going to happen once someone goes into a San Francisco public school. Why not when they're 15? In the same way that all the STEM money with engineering, they target kids at a young age and start to prepare them with the fundamentals. That to me is much more important and a much um, better investment than trying to fire people. And even the work that I do in professional development, what what it takes to try to shift someone's practice once they're in the field is so much more difficult than when you're actually training them.
3: The lawsuit kind of seems to come from a place of where everyone who's went to public school has a teacher that they wanted to get fired who seemed like had been at the school forever and would just terrorize everybody and just kind of to really play into that, I think. The reality is, is like until, I mean, for me, it's like until students and parents have a voice in whether or not a teacher is doing a good job, whether or not a school is doing a good job, you're not gonna have any true evaluation of the finished product. I mean, like if someone is making clothes for you, you wouldn't just let them give them to you and be like, these are cool, and not try them on and give them feedback. You know what I mean? Like there's normally some type of dialogue or evaluation that goes through. Like if, if, you, if you have a doctor, you're gonna pick the doctor you like. And if there's an issue with the doctor, you might. Find one that suits you better, um, and I feel like that's what's missing from education right now—a place where students and parents have a voice to reflect on what they're experiencing and how their school experience is being laid out for them, um, related to um,
1: to them being, you know, important constituents in the school community. You know, one one thing we could look at is uh, is a country like Finland. So again, Finland is a place where becoming a teacher is a prize. Uh, career choice. So it's tough to get into the graduate schools in order to enter the profession. So the issue of getting rid of the bad teachers is basically a non-issue in Finland, because I'm sure there are some exceptions, but the teachers in the classroom are prepared, it's their career choice, they have security in that, and it's just not an issue in that Country, so we have created an issue of getting rid of the bad teacher because of lack of resources, lack of support, lack of proper professional training. Um, so we are now trying to fix the problem, if there is a problem, on the wrong end. Um, one of the things we're doing in San Francisco, working with Stanford and USF, and now it looks like we'll be able to reach out to SF State is our teacher residency program, which is the and the next step has to start earmarking students in SFUSD, but it's getting students who are committed to choosing, the best students, choosing teacher as a career-long choice and with, with the focus on teaching in schools in low-income neighborhoods. So, you know, that is exactly the kind of thing we have to do and making it more and, and undermining teachers' job security will do nothing to improve the profession.
2: I do think one of the challenges I have with the, the Finland example, and in the past, people have talked about Japan, is they don't, they're don't they not dealing with the legacy of slavery. They're not dealing, I mean, they, they certainly have class issues. But I think one of the challenges that we face is we're, we're in some ways talking about a, a post-desegregation problem, right? And it's not to say that when schools were segregated, everything was great by any means. And when you when you have this this coupling of race and class, in in particularly in urban areas, um, things get really dicey. So, you know, I've, I've been uh, doing some small work with the San Francisco residency program, and one of the things that we were trying to figure out is how do we attract candidates of color, who are going to have moved through the system in a way that they've maintained who they are as a whole person, um, and have what it takes to, na- to continue to navigate a system that it's just not set up for success, for, for most people. But certainly when it comes to teachers of color, this, so many teachers, young teachers I've met, are coming up with the same challenges that their students are facing with these tests, whether it's you know credentialing, getting into a credentialing program or passing a test. They have connections with their students, but now we're finding, particularly in the mission, this pushback from white parents, is this teacher qualified enough? I'm coaching a, a teacher now, um, one of my former students, um, who's struggling with this, where I look at her practice and I'm like, you are so much better than what I taught you. I'm like, you're a better teacher than I was then. But she's facing this challenge where she really wanted to work with black and Latino students. The mission is becoming more white. Parents are challenging her authority, challenging her intelligence, literally. Luckily she has a supportive principal, but that does also doesn't make it very attractive. So when people say they want more teachers of color, I, part of the question I have is what protections do you have in place so that they can thrive in the skin that they're in? And I feel like the United States is a very complex problem, particularly in urban areas, as we see gentrification, as we see the, the tide changing. And I'm not calling for a resegregation of schools and I think we have to look at this as a challenge of desegregation of the sort of second or third wave of that.
0: All of this basically is just an extended commercial for season four of The Wire. So
3: um. (laughs) Let's do it. Mix it with Breaking Bad. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess like for me, representing Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth uh, and our parent and youth members uh, who are in SF public schools, I think... Um, it, it's really important that other people who who aren't African-American and Latino who are in San Francisco and who care about the future of all young people um, start paying attention to what's going on, because it's just really it's really shocking. Um, African-American students make up 50 percent of all the suspensions in the district. And they're nine percent of enrollment. You know, what I mean, so if you that, that's a huge number um, in San Francisco, students in elementary school are having the police called on them and getting arrested, right? Is that the kind of city we want to have? Is that the kind of school district we want for our children, right? Can we do better? I mean, we look around and see some of the great things that are happening in San Francisco. I've never seen this many cranes for skyscrapers ever downtown. So if we can do that, we can provide a quality education for the small number of children that we have here. And I would even say, right now, we're doing a good job of educating half of our student body, the half that's not African-American and Latino. You know what I mean? If we could just be consistent, uh, we'd be 10 steps ahead of the game and really be on a path to having a world-class school system here in San Francisco that could offer so much more um, to all students because um, a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, the better all these schools are, the better it's going to be for everyone and the more success that we can all have and share in Um, And and the roots of that is is sharing power and not thinking that power lives in a suit and drives a big car and makes $300,000 a year. That was the NATO Sessions podcast
0: on public education with Misha Mosley, comedian and educator, Ken Trey of United Educators of San Francisco, and Kevin Bogus of uh, Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth. Check out all of them. Please subscribe to the NATO Sessions on SoundCloud or Stitcher or iTunes. Please rate us and review us, share us around. Um, Produced by 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Uh, Executive produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by DJ Real. Follow me on Twitter at Nato Green. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time.